we're live. Coachability Podcast with Coach Neil. Coach Kel, where we're about to get a little bit smarter, a little bit stronger, and a little bit richer today. Let's get it. All right, you guys, joining us today, we have Josh Meltzer, owner of Melts Fit here in San Diego, and he's got a, a digital online presence, so I guess you're global, huh, Josh? We work from anywhere these days. <laughs> You guys, Josh is a tremendous trainer, wealth of knowledge. We're going to be diving into a lot of different things today. But as always, Josh has no idea what we're going to ask him. We keep the conversation organic, authentic. So let's see what he's got. Potentially the most important question of the day. It's a hot button topic, not quite nationwide yet, but Coach Kelly and I have gotten in a few tussles about it. Josh, talk us through your process for making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Order step by step. Oh, this is a good one. All right, so step by step, you want it all? Yeah, all. everything. All right. Gritty details. We got to get the plate out. We got to get the loaf of bread out. Okay. Peanut butter, jelly, my preferred strawberry jelly. I'm okay. a strawberry good guy. Good man. So sometimes I'll toast the bread, actually. I like it a little toasted if Ooh. I'm home. <laughs> if I'm home. Right. Wow. So maybe melt the peanut butter, this Josh guy. Melts, so toast, toast the bread. We're going to put that. <laughs> We're gonna put them on the plate, <laughs> and I go peanut butter spread first on one side. Oh, good. Jelly on the other. Good gravy. Sandwich them together. Gosh, good. You're a good man. That's it. Excellent. I'm That's a normal person. Good. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. that was the right answer. There, there's animals. Oh, walking. There's I animals mean, walking around here that put peanut butter on both sides. I swear. I'm just shocked that you guys even have muscles. Only peanut buttering one side. No, see, then it's too sticky. It sticks to the top and bottom of your Not mouth. Not if you're it's toasting a... it. If you're toasting, it's just melty goodness. Now this. Well, is, then it's like all over your shirt at that point. Yeah, once peanut butter gets on your shirt, it's there all day. Well, <laughs> you gotta throw on the bib. There's a there's a bib. I had a I had one friend who said. He goes, Kel, you, you peanut butter both sides. What do you, you do with the knife here? Like, what, you're going to get peanut butter all in the jam, this and that? I was like, I'll use two knives if I need to. Kelly, the beautiful part about peanut butter and jelly is you do, obviously, jelly first like a normal person. Jelly it, and then on the other loaf of bread that has not been touched yet, you clean it up. Oh, you jelly first. I th I'd have to say that majority of folks go peanut butter first. Hold on, what'd you do? Peanut butter. peanut butter first. Oh, well, listen, breaking news here, Coach Ability Podcast. Jelly first, the other bread, untouched, unloved. You just coat it with a little bit of jelly just to get enough right. to wipe off the spoon. So you're going in there peanut butter with a fresh knife. Well, I'm sure the wife, spouse, girlfriend would appreciate that too. That's a strong play. I can't argue with that. All right, well, let's get into the real podcast. That was compelling <laughs> stuff, though. All right, you guys, Josh Meltzer, let's dig in. All right, Josh, so to get us started, why don't you give us a quick background? Uh, how you got started in the fitness industry? What's your certified through? Um, like, wh what drove you to, to start a career within fitness? Yeah, I love it. So, it all started with my parents. Uh, my dad has always been into working out, strength training, lifting. Mom as well, you know, leading a healthy lifestyle. So I saw that growing up. It's funny, I grew up in Maryland and we had in our basement, uh, it was an unfinished basement. So we used to play roller hockey down there when we were kids. So we'd be skating around, playing roller hockey, but then there was this red tape, right? We couldn't cross the red tape because we weren't old enough and on the other side of the red tape, guess what there was? Gym? 
all the weightlifting equipment. So my dad had all the equipment in the basement and he had this stuff from like, when he was in high school, it was like an old bench, old set of dumbbells, rusted and everything. As we got older, we outgrew roller hockey. We were just too big. You could skate across the basement in like one push. So red tape came off. We started lifting and then the whole side of the basement just turned into a gym. And we were really fortunate that like, that's how I was raised, like just working out. And I didn't really appreciate it until I got into high school because like in middle school, I told like my PE coach and he was like, dude, you should be lifting like every day. You'd be like the best kid out there because no one else is doing that. And I was like, that sounds good. And I never did it. All right. Like I was just like too naive to even realize what I had. You have no idea what the value is at this point. No, no understanding. Right. And I just didn't care. I was playing video games, playing outside with my friends. Like I didn't want to just sit there and lift. I didn't know what I was doing. So my dad started teaching me. I started learning with the high school football team. We have the off season training programs and I really buy into it. Like I want to learn everything there is to know about like why we're doing what we're doing, lifting. So that kind of spiraled into like, what do you want to study in college? And I'm like, well, I guess exercise science because I want to know why I'm doing this, like why this matters and how this helps us. Uh, So I ended up looking at kines programs, went to Penn State, studied kinesiology, had an amazing four years. And then actually before in my third year, we had to get an internship, right? Actually. Throughout the process, we had like smaller internships. So I worked at little gyms. I actually was a trainer all throughout college. So I got certified, I think my sophomore year. So I must've been like 18 or 19 when I got certified to train. I got certified through NASM first. I did all my research and that one was the most highly recommended from educators and friends and colleagues I had met. So NASM, CPT, Certified Personal Trainer, and then coaching in the Penn State weight room. It's like for the the students so I was training other kids just getting getting some reps in but at that point it was like today's chest day back day leg day we were doing hammer strength this machine pre-core that machine like going through the motions and looking back I'm like I didn't really know what I was doing but like you got to make the mistakes to learn right so I was going through the reps and then my big internship which was like the full summer like three month thing I talked to a buddy um, Pat Nard, one of my really good friends these days, a mentor, someone I highly respect and look up to. He was three years older than me. So he was a senior when I was a freshman. We were like the only Kines guys um, in our fraternity that we were buddies with. So he was like, dude, I work for this company called Equinox. I was like, yeah, what, what's that? You know? And he's like, you got to work here. So he hooked me up with the right people. I got an internship at Equinox. And there is where like we took it to the next level and I just started learning and learning and learning um and it was from there I mean the rest is history that's kind of how I got into the industry that's a great story yeah yeah I love that hey now that you're a coach now looking back at your dad teaching you how to move in your uh, basement gym how do you do scale one to ten? <laughs> <laughs> oh geez I give him an eight I highly, highly, highly respect the guy. Okay, so what was his coaching style like? Did you learn how to coach from him in some sense? I would not say I learned how to coach from him, but I learned how to lift from him. Because, like, dude, my dad is still very strong. Like, back in the day, he was benching over 400 pounds. Like, he's not, and, like, his squat was never there because he was an upper body guy, but he used to play tennis and his coach told him to stop lifting. And he was setting, like he was in the, he went to University of Maryland. He was in the paper one time for like lifting records because he was in some like small competition. So he taught me how to lift and I I truly learned the value of lifting. And then my coaches, 
I guess, in, at Penn State and then throughout the, the, the rest of the process taught me how to coach. But as far as learning the, the movements, my dad helped tremendously, oh, you know, so cool. he was pretty good. But with the whole, like, he didn't really understand programming. Like, the guy was doing the same workout for the past 20 years until I kind of intervened with my training experience. Until and, you came in and, and said, Dad, maybe you do it this way. <laughs> until we added some progression and periodization and added, modified. Oh, that's <laughs> Just, so cool. You know, that's, to me, like, that's the dream is to get your kids into fitness that way by leading by example. I always get fired up when I, I have trained a lot of folks that have kids and, and they train, uh, they, they put fitness first. They, they see their, their, their kids see them coming to the gym and at 5 a.m. And, and, and putting their reps and I go, gosh, that's a cool model to have for your well, children, you know? It's huge and like I talked to my mom about this too. I'm so thankful. Like she used to hate working out because she wasn't raised that way. Like her parents were not that way. And then obviously she gets married to my dad and then he's into this whole health and fitness thing and it kind of rippled out and trickled onto her and then for as long as I can remember, like every morning they're in the gym working out together. And it's just cool to see that. Like that's all I remember like growing up and like she's either doing workout tapes, P90X, this and that, like the kickboxing stuff. And nowadays she's lifting cause like she understands the value. Like before she just, she even tells me these days, she's like, I used to hate it until it just became a lifestyle. You know what I mean? And it wasn't always easy for her to just wake up and go to the gym. And now if she doesn't go to the gym every morning or work out in the basement <laughs> or in the garage these days, cause they don't have a basement anymore, but she's just like, that's her life, which is amazing. It's awesome. So I'm really fortunate. That's really cool. Yeah. The garage gym. I think we're all aspiring to have our own garage gym or the basement gym. In right? Maryland too, it's probably cold as balls outside yeah. and you're down there just getting a sweat in. Yeah. So they got a little <laughs> uh, space heater because they have a garage now. So they got the space heater, but it, it's been pretty cold lately. So they've been staying inside. They have a rower and a Peloton inside. So they're big fans of that. Oh, they're set. I wonder, like, you know, as, as you continue to thrive in your career, if if that could be like one of those garages that you stop by, the basement you got to stop by, oh, we got to go hit Melts, uh, you know, Papa Melts's gym, right? Get a couple Dude. lifts in. Quick awesome. pump. Yeah, it's, while in Maryland, stop yeah. by. It's like the Mecca. It's like Venice of uh, Maryland. So, so Dad was kind of the first mentor in lifting. Mm -hmm. uh, this this guy that you met that turned you onto the internship. Was he another one, or did you have any other mentors that helped you get up and running and and build your career? Yeah, great question. I mean, this did not happen by chance. I had a lot of people helping me, coaching me, guiding me, inspiring me. So my mom and dad were big ones. Pat was probably the next guy, the first guy that comes to mind because in college we were always just sitting, talking, discussing like the future, our careers, where we wanted to go after school, what we wanted to do. And he was always a big thinker guy, right? Like what's funny is, um, God, I'm going to blank on this book, but he like we were in the fraternity, right? And all the older guys would make you do like chores or whatever. And Pat made me read a book. Wow. And it was like the art of Zen something. I forget what it was, but it was just like, you just knew that was the kind of dude that you wanted to like talk to and learn more from and follow. Like, I'll never forget that. Um, Shout out, Pat. That's nice. Yeah. 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 So like, so Pat was just that guy that was like, always had your back. And you know, he, he took me under his wing. He was a guy that had a ton of success in his career early on, and these days still is. Like he's just opened his own gym in New York. Um, so Main Street Strength, really cool place. Main Street, Main Street Strength. Shout out. Yeah, if you guys are outside of New York City, I'd definitely check that out. But he is a guy that like still he's programming for me as we speak. So I'm lifting under his program because even coaches need good coaches, right? How good is that relationship? Kind of a lifelong mentor, you know? Yeah. You could just grow with. 
So then it's cool, after I got into Equinox, my biggest mentors at that point were my two managers. So it was Greg and Joe, uh, two really awesome guys that kind of took me under their wing because I was their intern. Uh, they kind of had to, but it was also a choice. They didn't have to have an intern. And at that point, like there was no established internship program. And they were like, yeah, you're a good guy. We want to take you on. And they kind of saw my hunger and drive and my passion, but I, I, they knew I was young and inexperienced. And they that set me miles above where I was. I went back to school senior year and all my friends that had other internships that just kind of went through the motions were like, how did you learn all this stuff? Yeah, what were yeah. you doing? Like I was FMS screening people my senior year of college at the gym I worked out of because I had learned through the system how to do that. And then I made the gym owner go buy an FMS kit. He was nice enough to do that for us. And it was like, I was uh, not to sound arrogant, I was miles above the other people that just took random internships at like a little home box gym, you know? Sure. So it, I was really, really fortunate that I got steered in the right direction. You know, we, we've said this a bunch. Unfortunately, well, up until now in the start of coachability, of course, uh, when you're coming up in the industry, just getting certified isn't enough. After that, you need to get around the right people. And, and you know, it sounds like you got around the right people but a lot of folks don't, and, and that's really tough, and, and we really encourage you guys to to seek out those great internships, so happy to hear that you got plugged with some good folks. Yeah, so I wanna say the next guy I owe a ton of credit to, his name is Roman Rodriguez, who was a trainer back in Maryland at Equinox, and this guy was like the top trainer in, in that location or whatever, one of the top guys, he was up there, and right away, you just kind of this bubbly, outgoing, enthusiastic guy. So you, everyone's kind of, he's a magnet. You're just attracted to this guy. So I'm like, what's that guy doing? How's he having so much success? I want to emulate that. And I was the new guy on the block coming into this gym. I wanted to learn how to be the best, yeah. you know, because that was my goal too. I want to be the top dog. Sure. So I go find the top dog and just take under, like he took me under his wing. He was nice enough to mentor me as well. And he kind of showed me the ways. And like the first thing he was is like, all right, what's your next goal? What's your next certification? What's the next workshop you're going to? How are you gonna develop yourself? Because it doesn't just happen. Like you gotta get the reps in the training sessions, but he was like, I invest thousands of dollars, maybe tens of thousands of dollars a year into my education process. And that was something that I never even thought of. Like as a 20 or 21 year old kid, like spend over a grand on like education. Like I just got a four year degree. I, I spent a ton of money. I don't need to spend more money because I'm certified now and I was like, Man, that was like you said, that's just like getting your foot in the door. And he was like, okay, what's next? You know, and it was, it was cool to get that push because that really opened my eyes to the world of like, what's that, what's out there, what's possible. And there's a ton out there. Uh, but right away it was FMS. It was strong first kettlebells. It was Institute of Motion and like Viper stuff and TRX. So right away I was like, learning from some of the best in the industry you know That's what i mean so far ahead of the normal curve there. and i was like 21 years old i was, I was doing nothing but bicep curls yeah. you know you came into my my college weight room and said hey uh check out this fms be like is that a drinking game what do we do how do we play line up the cups <laughs> i was really really lucky so that all makes sense to me now knowing like you now and, and where you are in your career like that of course you're around good people early. And it's one, it's luck, and two, it's I'm sure you seeked it out and you cherish the opportunities. Well, that's one thing, and like, I probably have to thank my parents and also like my professors in school and stuff again, and like, networking is everything. Cause like, you never know what doors are gonna get opened when you start talking to people and meeting people and just put yourself out there. So, whenever I went to one of these workshops or to one of these conferences or certifications, like you go up at the breaks and bathroom breaks or lunch breaks, you meet the head guy, you meet the other trainers, you meet the other coaches. 
figure out like where they're from, what they're doing, and just like ask them an open-ended question. And that leads to like so many other doors because you never know when you're gonna like cross paths with these people again or they're gonna point you in a different direction. And that's kind of how it all spiraled out for me was just not being afraid to have a conversation with someone and ask a few questions because that ultimately is what put me on the right path because I didn't know any of these certifications or what any of these companies were. Like I didn't know what direction to study or where to put my money and invest in myself. And these guys were all like, well, I've had a lot of success. This is how I did it. And I heard their stories. And then I just want to start emulating that, right? And it, it just, it helps tremendously. Is there any one or any, any one person or any book that you remember uh, referencing at that time that was very helpful? I mean, you just mentioned a ton of great people, <laughs> but I'm just trying to think of something that maybe someone else could consume. Yeah, is, I think, and this is, like if we start talking about like coaching resources the first place i want to send everyone to start is dan john yeah because dan john is a famous strength coach if you don't know who he is he's a wizard he's a um he's a ro what's the scholar he's like a i forget he's like a scholar he's a professor he's a very very smart guy i forget what the the name is um but regardless Dan John is a guy that is like so wicked smart that he's able to take everything he knows and make the complex simple. And that is, that's the best thing a coach can do for you, right? Because they take something that's like over your head and they bring it to your level. And I was not that smart. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I'd take complex things and make them simple or figure out ways to optimize and simplify things. And Dan John does that probably better than anyone else in our industry. So if I were to start somewhere, it's like whether it's, can you go, now what, fat loss happens on a Monday, never quit. Uh, Dan John's got so many good books out there that you could start with two or three of those. They're quick, easy reads, and they just they help tremendously. He gets right to the point. The cool part about Dan John, too, especially if you're reading it as a young coach, is it gives you confidence. Like he takes these massive ideas and says, no, just farmer carry people. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's how you build strength. Like it takes massive, complex ideas. and like, no, just follow this simple progression and you're gonna guarantee your client's results. At the end of the day, like, it works. Yeah. It's, it's not a secret, like, it does actually work. So yeah. yeah, listen to his advice and implement it. I love that, I love that. I, I think that's a thing that a lot of young coaches struggle with too, is they want the secret sauce. They want the thing that nobody else knows, right? That just they know, because maybe you're, if, if it might be tough to admit, but you're insecure in your training methods at that time. But so then go learn from others that have proven methods. You know, keep it simple, stupid. <clears throat> Josh, I'd like to hear, um, so your transition from uh, Penn State to the Equinox internship and then onto your coaching career. We heard a lot about your successes during that process, the people you got around. What were some tough lessons you had to learn? What were some struggles you went through early on in that coaching process? Yeah, so I, this is a great question. I think first and foremost, you come out, you're on like this high horse and you're like, I got my certification, I now know what I'm doing because I am the expert, I do know more than the person across from me, which is important to remember, but it almost, you sometimes like can take that a little too far and get a little cocky, a little arrogant, but it's just a maturity thing. Like I was immature at the time compared to where I am now and it's important to have confidence. Like don't shy away from that. However, I was immature and and thinking that it was all about fitness, right? Like I need to impress people with my exercise science or my anatomy. And I'm this smart kid out of college that has a four year degree. Some other trainers don't have a degree. So I need to tell everyone 
what muscles working, what joint actions happening, the lever arm, the bio, <laughs> and I'm like, and I, I quickly realize like, these people don't give a shit. Like they don't care at all about that. They we just want curse results. on this show. Yeah, these people, <laughs> these people just don't care that I'm training. And a lot of them, I was training kids my age in college. Now I'm training businessmen and women, lawyers, doctors, CEOs, and they're much older than me, so we're not connecting because I, I just wasn't able to have a conversation with them about like life. You know, we were on such different places in our life. So I started to figure out like, okay, like these people need to keep coming back. It doesn't matter how much I know about exercise science. In order to get them back in the door, we need to have fun, it needs to be entertaining, but it also needs to be effective and get results, right? And there are some people, there will be a few clients that wanna know exactly why we're doing what we're doing and what muscles are working or why this adaptation occurs because of the stimulus input on. But generally speaking, a lot just wanna get a good workout and wanna have a conversation with you, so I learned how to have better conversations. Like I literally stopped studying, I mean, I, I never stopped studying all the fitness stuff, but I started studying uh, how to have a conversation, right? Like emotional intelligence, charisma, um, how to influence and influence people, right? Like stuff like that is where I would recommend going because that ultimately will keep people coming back and then you dial in the exercise science. That's Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. It's a must. On that note, I thought something that was interesting that you like, a young coach wants to give this wealth of knowledge to everyone they meet. They're eager to tell people about planes of motion and why their programs mm -hmm. are best. But you said, you said that not everyone wants to know that. So maybe a young coach needs to realize when people want to know that, they'll let you know they want totally. to Totally. Well, they'll start asking why. Up until they ask why, there's no reason why you're telling planes of motion <laughs> other than you're insecure with your coaching and you need to give them more whys so that they think you know what you're talking about. Right, like ultimately who is the session about, us or them? It's not about us as the trainer or coach, it's about the client or the athlete. And we need to sometimes shut our mouths and let them do the talking and the working, right? It's about them. It, and it, almost like a Dan John thing, they'll assume that there's a ton of why behind it, but you just made a complex idea simple. Right. They don't need to know why you came up with that program, but those exercises worked in conjunction with each other and that's all that really matters to them. For sure. That's cool. So what are some characteristics you think all great coaches should have? Oof. It's a tough one. That's, that's a big question. Let's yeah. do it. Let's go down that rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> you hit on one already, fun and entertaining, I like that. Yeah, well, yeah. so that's Start a small there. part of it, but that's a, it's important. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the most important thing that in my experience that I've seen good coaches have is a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, right? And that opens up a ton of doors to every other characteristic that you'll ever need in the coaching industry if you have a growth mindset. So the difference, right, is with a growth mindset, you see value in everything you do. And you attack everything with enthusiasm and passion, regardless of the outcome. Whereas with a fixed mindset, all you care about is the outcome. So if the outcome is to help this client lose 10 pounds and they didn't do it after their six week training program, you're a failure, like that's a fixed mindset, right? Like, I just failed. And that's that's not true. Like, if you actually reflect on that with a growth mindset, you can learn something from that. So every failure opportunity is a mistake, or is an opportunity. So every mistake and failure is an opportunity, right? 
you need to learn from that and that's having a growth mindset with that growth mindset comes confidence comes grit comes emotional intelligence another big one characteristic of coaching i think is patience right like this stuff does not happen overnight i didn't learn all this overnight it's taken years and you have to be patient uh so it's just a matter of being open-minded and learning from all the the little things you do but having the patience to see like the big thing right you guys know gary v big social influencer right i love one of his quotes that is micro speed macro patience so you need to attack the little stuff right attack it with micro speed but have patience in the in the long game right patience for the big stuff and you need to not ignore it like have the vision and think about that but that's not what you prioritize like you need to be patient and focus on the stuff that's right in front of you jeez knowledge bombs are dropping take cover you should have seen Neil's eyes just light up with the micro speed macro patience. That's good. That was good. It's really good, Josh. I, I'm, yeah. So growth mindset to to me that was a big thing that I had to learn early. When you struggle, it's so quick to blame others and want to just go into your little box and have a pity party. Oh, for that's he, I, I, that's so. I'm glad you said that because like, I think I have, I would just assume that everyone goes through that. There's a point where I was like blaming others right or you blame the client or you blame circumstance or blame the environment for whatever the outcome was but then you either have mentors and a coach or a manager or someone that steers you on the right path and then you start to learn how to do this intrinsically on your own and that i think that's the turning point i can't even pinpoint like when that was for me it's hard to say but you know for as long as i can remember now you you flip the switch and i think that's ownership and responsibility so those are two more characteristics that I would like to add is as far as what do good coaches have, like they take ownership of the process, the outcomes, the relation, just the whole entire process. It's, it's important. Yeah. My favorite part about all the things you just said, ownership, uh, growth mindset, patience, those aren't X's and O's. Those aren't tangibles. That's, that's human presence. And that's something that we preach a lot in, in our coachability mentorship is you have to have the human skills to be a good coach before you have the X's and O's. Or maybe before, during, in between, They have throughout. to weave together. They definitely work together. Well, right, because we've seen both sides of it, right? You guys have been in the industry long enough. You see some really smart trainers working alongside of you. They've got master's degree in the fields, yet they have two clients that are barely getting results. Like, why is that? Like, on paper, this guy is, or gal is really smart. And they do know what they're doing. Like I've seen them train and coach. They, it's scientifically sound. However, if you don't have those intangibles, the client's not coming back. They're not enthusiastic about training. And I, I want to get to talking about like emotional states in a minute, but that's a big factor in this game. Like it's not just about your physical state. Like your mental and emotional state is incredibly important when you talk about a training session and outcomes from a training session. Because if someone doesn't want to be there, they're not excited to do it, do you think the outcome is going to be as good? Do you think they're going to lose that weight or pack on that muscle if they don't even enjoy the process of doing it? Mm. It's, not, it's not sustainable at that point, I would argue. You know, like, if you take someone out of their comfort zone too far, the challenge is too great, and you're not making it enjoyable, see you later. That was really good. <laughs> that was good. All right, so you, you kind of touched on this, but... What do you think is the biggest area of opportunity for young coaches getting started in this game? 
Jeez. I mean, we talk about a growth mindset and stuff like that. And like, obviously those are really important, but it's tough because obviously the coachability podcast is dedicated to the up and coming coaches out there that are looking to improve their craft. So if you could think back, you know, that, that biggest area of opportunity that maybe young Josh had, what do you think it was? That's a great question as well. The biggest area of opportunity for young coaches to improve, I would say is to implement systems. And here's the thing, like if you start going off the cuff, random this, random that, you don't have a tracking system, you don't have follow-up, you don't have accountability, like there's a lot of moving parts and moving pieces in this profession to get someone results and you need to systematize. That goes with business, that goes with life and relationships, like everything gets better when you have systems and the expectations are clear and people are on the same page. But with that being said, what I learned early on was like, don't try and reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of smart people out there having a lot of success that already have really good systems. So find one that works for you and start to implement it. And then once you get comfortable and the wheels are spinning, sure, you can make slight tweaks and modifications to that system, but don't try and start from scratch. Like find a good coach or mentor that has a good system and implement it. I love that because we're talking about, when you're talking about systems and every, every day, every mistake is an opportunity to learn more. I'm thinking about being in the gym this morning and I see a handful of trainers working with clients, no clipboard, no iPad, no tablet, nothing. So they're just winging it, right? Like I, I know this, they're winging it. And what are you learning? How are you tracking data to see if, I mean, even this great idea that you may have, your, your person may have had a great workout, but how are you gonna know? over time right like you know? where are you tracking baselines are you tracking progress do you know what state they come in that day like are, do you, are you holding them accountable with anything except for just like hey I haven't seen you in two weeks you know like you gotta have a system for all that and then that's just your existing clients what about talking about new business and opportunities yeah. that's a whole nother story that that new trainers need to realize and new coaches because unless you're at a place where they're feeding you athletes or feeding you clients like a, a combine center or whatever it, you got to sell yourself right if you're in a commercial gym um, or even an independent trainer you need to you need to learn sales and that's a system well you got to have something to sell too what else are you selling hey, I could come up with some good stuff every once in a while and just shoot from the hip you know who wants to buy that yeah but you can if you did have uh, a, a whole plethora, a cornucopia of programs, and then you can talk about. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so you've got your your programs, and you've got testimonials or whatever. You're tracking data on people, and you can say, "Yeah, Jim, I actually feel very confident I can help you reach your goals because I've done it before." And you're not just guessing. Well, let's spin the conversation too, because the system's not only important for the coach; it's important for the client. Like, think about that. How are they paying you? Is there a system? What time do they show up? Is there a system? How do they know is there a cancellation policy? That's part of your system. What's the communication style? Do you guys email? Do you text? Do you phone call? Do you send mail? <laughs> like, do you send a pigeon? I don't know. Like, you have to have a system to communicate with your clients. You have to have a system. So, do they know? Are they coming in mentally prepared? Like, okay, today is going to be a cardio day, or today is going to be an intense squat day, or today is going to be what? Like, you need a system. That's a big thing. Do they know? Or are they just coming in like, well, we'll see what Coach Josh puts together today? Yeah. No, they should know what's coming up so they can mentally prepare. Maybe fuel up the night before. Get enough rest. 
Yeah, like think about your guys' workouts. Like you know you got a big deadlift day coming up. Aren't you gonna act differently leading up to that? Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I'm listening to the to the verbiage of system, I don't know about you guys, but I'm like, I think of system. I go, oh, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a software engineer. I don't know how to write systems. I don't know how to do that. System. I go like automatically to like software. You understand sure. that? I think systems and coaching are like routines, methods, and almost habits to an extent. Okay. You understand yeah. that? Ooh, yeah. So, so like, but let's not let's not get lost in like, I don't, I don't have a system. No, no, you do have a system. If you're writing programs on Sunday night, that's a system. Yeah. If you're constantly reminding your people that you're coming in the next day, that's a system. You know, you, look, yeah. Look, look at Coach Neil Ward. He's trying to break down the, the terminology, the verbiage, and try to coach you up in a different way. He's like, it's okay if you don't get the system. You got a routine, man. You got to have it. Yeah. Well, look, like, kind of scares me. some of my <laughs> systems started on, like, notepads. You know what I mean? Or started in, like, those black and white composition books. Like, that was a system at one point. And it worked for a little while. And then I realized, like, okay, I know how to use Google and Gmail, so I could put, like, Google Docs and, like, Google Sheets together and basically use I don't know much about Excel but I know enough to put together like uh, a couple tables and put together a program and then I can copy and paste that and progress it and it's like it's gonna make your life so much easier when you have this system like you're saying if you have clients for anywhere over like a week or two how do you know I forget Mm -hmm. I've trained I don't know how many hundreds of people you've trained or how many thousands of sessions you've done but if I saw someone a year ago, I'm not going to remember what their weights were or what their metrics were. Like, a year? How about a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, how about, yeah, a day or two ago, you see 10 people a day or something, and you're like, what did that person do yesterday? Like, if you have a system, it's easy to go back and yeah. figure it out. If you don't, you're scratching your head looking like a fool in front of the client, and then they're not getting the results because you don't know how to load the bar properly, and they're just like, isn't this your job to do this? And you're like, it, it should be. Yeah. Oh gosh, mm-hmm. like makes my skin crawl mm-hmm. thinking about that. Sorry, we've all been there though. It's okay, guys. Yeah. So sorry to interject. Yeah. I want to talk about habits for a minute. Yeah, let's uh, go. Nice. We yeah. need to the talk smile about on habits. His face when he said yeah. habits. So yeah. first, you need to read two books. I would start with Atomic Habits, James Clear. It's a newer book that just came out. Hold on, I haven't read that one. Taking notes. Atomic Habits, and then the other one is The Power of Habit. It was uh, Charles. Yeah. Dweeg, I think yeah, that is. Yeah, tough last name. It was D-U-I? Some, well, yeah, you can put it in a, a post or some notes. Charles. Yeah, so they both talk about very similar things and one references the other, but when you talk about habits, whether they be your systems, your process of training, or your client's process, there's a couple things. So in the four laws of habit that are really important you need to know, right? First law is you identify the cue. So you need to make that cue obvious. Law number two is the craving. You need to make something attractive, right? Or make it unattractive if you're trying to break habit. And then the third law is the response. You need to make it easy. And the fourth law is make it rewarding or satisfying, right? So obvious, attractive, easy, satisfying. So let's like play that out. So you want to go to the gym and start like working out, right? Like that, that's the habit you want to build. So how can we make that obvious? Like what's something we can do to make that habit obvious? Besides like obviously going to the gym, what's, what's something we can actually implement? You guys have any ideas? Are we setting an alarm of sorts? Sure, set an alarm on your phone, set a reminder. I would say like time block it into your calendar. You could go as far as like I have people lay clothes out. Like if I'm trying to go to the gym first thing in the morning, I might lay out all my clothes right at my bedside so I step on them when I wake up. That's making it obvious. 
so that I can actually start doing this, this habit that I want to do, right? So after that's my cue, what's the craving? How do we make something like that attractive? Looking in the mirror. Okay, that's one way to do it. <laughs> that could be a positive or a negative reinforcement, right? The craving. Oh, I'm still fat. <laughs> so make it, make it attractive. Let's say like you could go as far as if I go to the gym, uh, I'm gonna, uh, that's actually more of a reward. So let's say make it attractive, you know, you okay. meet up meet up with a friend or have someone accountable, right? Where it's like attractive that there you want to be a part of yeah, something bigger than yourself. Like you have either a coach holding you accountable or you have friends holding you accountable. You need to make it attractive so you want to go and do that, right? Or you can make it unattractive where you say, you tell your friend, hey, if I, if I don't go to the gym, you know, punish me or like make a bet or something like that where you lose money over it, right? Like you put money on the line, guarantee it's gonna happen, right? So then the third is the response, making it easy. What, what's a way we could make that easy? I would say, well, easiest would be have a garage gym, right? We can't all do that. So you should probably find somewhere that's convenient, whether it be on your way to work, close to your house. Don't sign up for the place that's an hour away just because it's the coolest one in town. It's not gonna happen, that's not convenient. You know, if, if your goal is to get to the gym, make sure it's actually realistic so it can become a habit. Um, also, make it easy, meaning like, don't make your goal, I'm gonna go six days a week for two hours a day. That's not easy, that's not gonna happen. So to build the habit, start small. There's that story about the guy with, with the weight loss story, I forget the exact details, but his goal was to check into the gym. Didn't even have to work out, didn't even yeah. have to go on the treadmill, he just had to check in and he could leave. He literally checked in once and left. He checked in the next day and left. Then he checked in and was like, well I'm here, I might as well do something, so he walks on the treadmill for five minutes, leaves. The following week, he starts. he's like, I'm here. I might as well walk on the treadmill for 10 minutes, right? And that spirals out, and then he's going to the gym every day. So his goal was to check in. That's pretty easy. He didn't even have to go on some crazy regimen, right? But over time, that compounds, so we could talk about the compound effect, and that's just a matter of little things adding up to massive changes over the long haul. But it didn't start all at once. It didn't start, he didn't build Rome in a day, you know? So the fourth law is make it rewarding, make it satisfying. So like what What kind of, I mean, that there's a lot of things, right? Like you could give yourself the protein shake, you could give yourself a cheat meal, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but there's a lot of things you can do to make it rewarding and satisfying, so you need to reinforce the good behavior. That's when you look in the mirror. That's God. when you look in the mirror, right? Reward yourself, shirt off, <laughs> look good. A little flex sesh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's that, that's an, that's an important part that I always uh, forget with myself and often with clients too. The reward part is like you gotta celebrate your successes. That way you cement it. I'm thinking about reverse engineering that for the trainer that's listening to think about your client going through this, mm -hmm. right? Like, can you help set them up with this this habit loop, and then also make this so fun every session that it becomes a habit to come and see you. Yeah, we also have to, yeah, you can do little stuff like that, right? So, like, the most obvious example, too, on the flip side is, like, smoking, right? Like, everyone knows you shouldn't smoke, so you get the cue, which might be, like, stress at work, so you identify it, you get the craving for the nicotine, and then the reward is actually smoking it, but how do you flip that, right? So, like, if you want to change that middle craving or behavior, you can put tape over the box or get rid of your cigarettes. So you at the queue is like, oh, I gotta go buy them, right? And then that becomes harder to do. 
Whereas like if you want to make something easier to do on your clients and they want that to be like, okay, what's the cue? Well, you have them schedule it in their calendar. So the cue is they, they, they get a reminder that your training session's coming up. Um, the craving is like, oh, I want to get that endorphin rush. I want to get that metabolic hit, that epoch, that really good feeling that you get after you work out and have a good session, you know? And then the reward is like that feeling of accomplishment from the trainer that you, you congratulated them saying they did a good job, you know? Whereas like they, the people crave that and that becomes a loop, a feedback loop that people, like you ever heard someone that's like, man, I really miss working out with you. I miss training with you, right? Like a client that stopped due to whatever reason and they want to come back, but they just can't for, again, whatever reason, but they're like, man, I miss that. And that is like, they're missing that reward, you know? So they still have that habit loop in place where they schedule it in their calendar, they show up to the gym, but they're missing that reward because they, they were looking for it externally and they didn't get it. You know, so it's interesting and, and teaching people how to either do that on their own or find other ways of getting that external reward back. That's that's next level to think about that in your coaching process. I like that a lot. You seem like a habit expert to me. What's uh, one of your favorite personal habits? Oh, geez. Well, the first one, the most obvious one, a little hit of dopamine every morning when I make the bed. So you got oh. you gotta make the bed start the day off, and that's just one little little habit, right? Like that is so obvious and it's so easy to do. Um, but that starts like I already feel productive every I, my reward is that like I feel accomplished because I did something first thing in the morning right the second thing would be I make breakfast every single morning and I cook eggs and that is just a habit that starts my nutrition on the right foot every single day because I'm not putting junk into my system like right off the bat or I'm not skipping that meal entirely that's a whole nother conversation which it's not the end of the world if you skip breakfast but I want to put something healthy into my body first thing in the day. So I'll make like an egg sandwich or whatever, or just eat eggs plain. And that's, that's the easiest way to start the day. Um, other habits are obviously training, working out. These days I've been going three days a week. So that's actually lifting three days a week is really that's attainable to me. It's sustainable, yeah. you know, and I'm you know not. What's fun about the three days is you look forward to it. Oh yeah. Because I've been on five or six day week programs where like that seems unbearable at some points in time and you're just, you got a lot of other stuff going on in your life. I lift three days a week and every day I'm like, man, that's not bad at all. And I love those lifting days, you know? And then on the off days, I'm doing yoga, I'm running, training for a marathon right now, which is a whole nother story. Yeah, good grief. Have you lost weight? Were you, you still look like... Uh, you know, I haven't lost much weight because I've been eating a ton because yeah. I've just burned exponentially more calories when I go for an 11 mile run casually on the weekend. Like that's as far as we've gotten so far. We got 12 this weekend, so okay, we'll see. Great. Is it the full marathon? We're running a full Orange County marathon, Cinco de Mayo. Oh my God. That'll be my first one and probably my last one. <laughs> I'll be at a bachelor party that weekend. <laughs> I, just, I just got a story today. One of my clients shared it with me. He wouldn't mind me sharing it with him either because I'm talking about training for my half marathon coming up, which is a big deal for a big 250-pound meal. It's a, and Give me some credit. Over three miles, it's a big deal to me. Give me some credit. Him and his buddy back when they were like early 20s, med school. Let's run a marathon. Okay, let's do it. I can't see any reason why not to. They don't train for it as they should have. Uh, 21 miles in, he's like, we, you know, we're going at it, or, or, or seven miles in. Like, we're going, say. we're going too fast. Because they like, pass the guy with the seven-minute mile marker. Oh God! <laughs> I think we're doing this wrong. By, by he goes by mile 21, my friend, he's out. He's in the tent. He's in the medical tent. <laughs> by, by mile 23, I start defecating uncontrollably. Stop it! And he still finishes. Oh, Stop what it. a heart of a champion! Gross Golly. champ. 
Yeah. Uh, See, like, so well, I don't mean to scare you, Josh, but make sure you train properly. No. So here's my goal, right? Like, here's the goal. If you if you talk to the girl, the goal is I need to beat her. But the the true goal. Wait, wait. Is that what she's saying? And that's my. I t- I was messing around. I told her I'm gonna beat you, and she's done. This will be. Wait, hold on. Twelve. If if I remember correctly, you once told me that your bo- your girl ran the Boston Marathon, which you need an invitation to. Yeah, yeah. She, this will be her twelfth one. This will be my first. So she's I, a I got odds on her. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I probably What's do too. Under right now? Yeah, but but the, the obvious goal is uh, finish. And that's it. Like, all I'm worried about is finishing. I don't care about my time so much. I'm a little competitive, so I'll push it. But it, the goal is to finish. And how I broke that down, because talk about habits and goal setting, I love another book, The One Thing, right? They start talking about goal setting in the now. So I think the example they use is that. Kel, if I offered you $100 today or $200 tomorrow, what do you take? You can double your money if you wait a day. I'll take, I'll take, well, I get the 200 tomorrow? Yeah, you just wait a day and you'll double your money. Yeah, I'll take the 200 tomorrow. Okay, seems pretty obvious, right? Yeah. So if I offer you $100 today or $200 a year from now, what do you do? Do you wait a year to double your money? I'd probably take the 100 invested. Okay, okay, you're getting down. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Most, most people, right? they will take that immediate reward and they don't have the patience to wait a year and that's just psychology that's just the way we're hardwired so no no, i honestly my mental space did go to the hundred just as a no yeah you and nearly everyone else i don't know where you're going to be in a year so you and nearly everyone else are going to take that hundred dollars today and you're not waiting a year to double your reward so when you set a goal it's important to have that big macro vision a year from now that you want to lose 50 pounds or whatever or gain a ton of muscle or run a marathon or whatever the big goal is down the line but you need to shrink that goal and set it to right now so like for my running to build that habit of actually running because i used to i didn't run maybe i ran a mile a week before i started marathon training now my, my goal was to run three days a week that's it and two of those runs were short. I had the one long run on the weekends. So it's just a three-day-a-week running program, which in my mind doesn't seem that bad. If you told me I had to run five or six days a week to run this marathon, I would not be doing it. Puke. Yeah. And if you had told me how to do that on top of like five training sessions a week and work and life and relationships and friends, like no way that's happening. But you set these small goals and I literally like I have a 15, 16-week plan I'm following I don't look at, I looked at the whole thing once and now I look one week at a time. Sure. So if you ask me what my mileage is in two weeks, I don't know. Like I'm not even concerned right now about what's happening in two weeks because my goal is to like get through this one week. And I have that all scheduled out in my Google calendar. It's all planned out my runs and the time I'm running. And that's the goal and that's the habit I have is I schedule everything into the calendar and I make an appointment with myself to do that. But I don't know what's happening two weeks from now. <laughs> micro speed macro patience that's it uh just random question because you know i'm a shoe guy what are you running in right now yeah good question i have gone to the nike pegasus the nike pegasus oh it's a good looking shoe it's it's a good looking shoe they're comfortable i used to when i was in high school i started running track one year because i thought i was going to get faster football so i sprinted Uh i got shin splints terribly so that was when i learned like the value of good shoes but also good mechanics because absolutely really uh famous guy named Ido Portal, movement specialist, um, talks about, he's got another really good quote, high-tech shoes, low-tech feet, right? If you also read Born to Run, they start talking about 
how the biggest predictor of injury had nothing to do with like training mileage or age or weight or gender. The biggest predictor of injury in some of these like endurance ultra races was the price of someone's shoe. So double the price of your shoe and you have double the chance of getting injured because they're relying on that equipment to save them when they don't actually have the underlying foundation of good mechanics, a good gait cycle, strong feet, and just an overall conditioned body. But they look good though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess there's walkers and there's runners. Yeah. yeah. Walkers and the cool. Pegasus aren't a cheap shoe, but we get the Nike trainer discount, which you guys should know about. A little percentage off there. So the Pegasus are good shoes I've been running in. Love it. Alright. I'm gonna I wanna pivot real quick. And we know you're big into breath work. Oof. Okay. So I'm, I'm call me an amateur breather. I mean, I've been doing it successfully for a few years now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second. Yeah. But it is, as far as breath work for the health benefits, I don't know. What's the cadence? What are you, what are you doing right now, man? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll answer that in just a quick sec. I don't want to, we could talk about this all day long. I, I'm just all about this topic right now. However, breathing is, the most essential thing we do, right? Like you can go a month without eating any food. You could go a week without eating any water or drinking any water. You could go a couple of days without sleeping at all. Like how long can you survive without breathing? Hold on, time me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like a couple of minutes. Like if you think about a breath, the only thing that's with you from the time you're born to the time you die. Everything else is in transition. Right? Breathing is essential and it's also really fascinating that autonomic nervous system right so it happens basically automatically it's subconscious we don't have to think about it so heart rate blood pressure breath cycle we don't think about that all day long and it just happens but it's one of the few things in our autonomic nervous system that we have conscious control over so you can't just like think about lowering your heart rate you can't just think about like lowering your blood pressure lowering your cholesterol right you can think and control your breathing which will in turn have an effect, a downstream effect on all of those other things in your body. So the blood pH balance, right, is something that we play around with and talk about a lot in breathing. Most people know that living in acidity is not a good thing. Like a, a lot of disease and cancer and viruses are associated with an acidic environment where like you've heard of alkaline water, alkaline diets are becoming popular because people wanna become more alkaline because the American diet is typically a little bit more acidic than it should be. And we wanna live at a balanced state. You don't actually wanna to be too far alkaline, that's dangerous, you wanna be balanced. But most of us are skewed on the side of acidity, whereas the quickest way to change your pH level is not to take a drug or do anything crazy like that, it's to simply breathe. Stop. So we test and retest this on little pee dipsticks and you can breathe for a 20 minute session or even probably even less and change your pH levels. Get out of here. So if you've got, the way I got introduced to all this was met a guy in the area who's Wim Hof certified. So if you're familiar with Wim Hof and his breath work, he's the Iceman, 20-some Guinness Book of World Records. They did a really, uh, they're starting to study him in a lot of high-level universities. This and they, guy walking around in shorts and like just blizzards, right? Yeah, he, he tried to climb Everest in his shorts Ugh. and he, he got pretty far. I forget. Try Viore's. I, get, I forget. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Viore there. <laughs> Great shorts. Encinitas flagship. Gotta get there. <laughs> I forget uh, how high he got, but the, the really fascinating thing that they did with Wim 
in my opinion, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things they've done with him to study and and figure out the science behind his methods. But they hooked him up in a in a hospital to a bunch of different measuring devices, and they basically injected him or infected him with a strain of E. coli. Right? Tons of people have had this like test before, and the typical result is six to twelve hours of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, just Definitely nasty stuff. In mile twenty one, right? That's pretty sure E. coli. Oh God. <laughs> No, no, they're in hospital in a controlled environment, right? However, Wim went in with his mindset and started doing this breathing practice, and he was breathing so intently that it raised his pH levels, and in turn, his alkalinity boosted his immune system, which fought off the infection. He had no adverse side effects. So like 100% of people they did this study on before had had a really terrible side effect. He had nothing. But then the guys at the hospital and the researchers were all like, you're just a specimen. You're like a crazy... He's an alien, obviously. You're you're like a freak, right? He's like, no, no, and I can prove this. I'll take any volunteers and I'll train them for like a week. It doesn't even take years to learn this. It's not a 10,000-hour journey. He's like, I'll train you for a week. So he took like 12 subjects, trained them for like four or five days. They all got injected. Same response, nothing. And they did this with breath work. So right away, I was like, what the hell? Like, breathing is life-changing, and it affects everything we do. Like, what happens when you're stressed out? Your breathing changes. What happens when you're uncomfortable, like, especially in a fitness? Like, you start holding your breath. What happens when you start to run and you start, like, huffing and puffing? Well, like, your performance decreases. You slow down, right? Like, you never see the guy at the gym that's panting on the ground, like, performing well. He's not breathing well, right? So breathing affects everything we do. If you start talking to people, like I love TED Talks, like if you actually hear behind the scenes, what are most of them doing before they go on stage? They're breathing. You know what I mean? They're, they're working on their breath to control their state and their mindset before they get prepared for a big event just to public speak, which is one of the scariest things you could do potentially for some people, myself included at times, right? But if you breathe, you can control your state. And you can flip the switch between parasympathetic and sympathetic, so fight or flight, rest and digest. It's unbelievable, right? So I've started to use this for a performance metric as far as there's a big difference between nasal and mouth breathing. So oh, no. I'm here, a big mouth breather. Here we go. So you and most Americans, right? Oh, oh no. <laughs> I know the science, Josh. Just get it over with. Can you can you tell them the story once about your experiment? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to steal Josh's thunder. So I read. It's I, just I, so I read, I read, no, no, please share. I want to. I, I read a book. Uh, you know, uh, gosh, uh, the Oxygen Advantage. I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. yep. I was going to reference it. Great book. Okay, cool. By so the I'm not, way, Jeff Bezos is getting an uptick in sales after this podcast. Holy smokes, we got at least twelve books <laughs> listed here. I got a hack for that too in a second. So I, I read the Oxygen <laughs> Advantage. And I'm thoroughly convinced I'm breathing through my mouth for the first some odd years of my life because I uh, am a big person and I need more oxygen. That's the theory I'm telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> right? This is definitely during sleep, too. And so I read this book, and that dispels the myth right away, first of all. And it says, okay, well, if you are a mouth breather, here's some, 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 some uh, t- uh, tips and tricks, if you will, to discontinue your mouth breathing. Trick number one, tape your mouth shut at night. <laughs> I said, guys, I'm an implementer. If you know anything about me, I read something, I go, okay, I'm trying this. And so I, 
I try it right off the bat. I can't sleep to save my life with my mouth shut, Josh. I've tried it multiple times. I still have a roll of tape by my desk by, or by, <laughs> by my bed. So I'm still like, I think about this stuff often and I think, gosh, I'm bad at mouth breathing, but I'm so tired, I need to go to sleep. So hit us with some science behind it. So the big thing <laughs> there, it's true and it's not easy at first and I would start to microdose it, meaning like whether you're taking a 20 minute nap or whether you're just doing some breath work like on a yoga mat or on the couch or on the ground, like don't try and sleep a full night with a tape shut if you're not comfortable with it. Start like microdosing before you go for the the big goal, yeah. right? Of sleeping the whole night with your mouth taped shut. Cause it can be, it can induce a little bit of anxiety, right? Sure. Which is the opposite effect of what we're going for. Of course. So our noses were designed for breathing, our mouths were designed for eating. Just simple as that, right? It's a bigger hole, the mouth, so you think that you can get a bigger breath, which you can get a faster breath. However, are we concerned with speed or depth? The goal is... Speed. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> at times. However, it's an efficiency thing, right? So not only does the nose like warm and filter and humidify the air, but it releases nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. So we can increase the size of our blood vessels so we get a better transfer between the tissues through the nose. Through the mouth, not so much. Another really interesting fact, like you guys know VO2 max tests, right? We all, if they put the blue mask over your mouth, they start doing these tests and most of those masks are designed, you, you can't really breathe through the nose, you're only breathing through the mouth. So right away you go into the sympathetic state, a little more fight or flight than normal. And people, a lot of times they're measuring like substrate utilization. So what fuel source are you using carbs or fats to, to burn that? Most people are burning carbs in those tests. Well, I think it's Harvard or Stanford. I forget which one has done a study now that they designed a specific mask that allows you to breathe through your mouth and nose. So it goes over the whole thing, almost like a scuba mask would, like a, a big one. And they've proven that the minute you flip switching and doing all nasal breaths, you're burning more fat. And when you flip to the mouth, you start burning carbohydrates. So for people that are looking to like burn and lose fat, that's really important. Now your performance at first might decrease because most people aren't trained to nasal breathe and you have to like scale back your intensity and slow down. However, if you're looking to burn fat, like nasal breathing is really, really impactful. Now there's a rule, there's an exception to every rule. Like if you're going for performance, if you're in a competition, like don't just tape your mouth shut and try and breathe through your nose if you're feeling like you're short of breath. Too. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's it's really hard in a competition, but if you're just training for improvement, like practice the nasal breath because there's a lot of benefits to it, right? And you actually right away, like when you breathe through your chest, most people's chest rise or breathe through your mouth, your chest rises, right? Well, you really aren't filling the lower lobes of your lungs with oxygen and you're not activating the diaphragm, which is like the most important muscle in breathing. So right when you breathe through your nose, you start to feel yourself fill up from the bottom up, not the top down. So it's like a bucket of water. The bucket of water doesn't fill up from the top down, it fills from the bottom up. You wanna do the same thing with your air that you're taking in. So right away when you start to nasal breathe, you feel that belly breath. So the easiest way to figure this out where I start my practice is I'll lay flat on my back, put my hand on my chest, put my hand on my belly, and start to breathe. And I'm feeling where that breath is coming from. Is that breath coming from my chest or my belly? Now, I wanna start with the belly breath, but then I wanna connect the two. So it starts belly chest. And it almost looks like a wave when you do it kinda of right. It's a really weird thing, but when you get that neuromuscular control, it's, it's a really efficient breath. Um, there are a lot of protocols that I, I have posts on Instagram about. There's a lot of articles out there. I'll link some to you guys. The easiest one I start with is called a step-up protocol, 
where I'll go for a couple breaths. I'll, so I'll do all nasal for like five breaths in there, three to five seconds in, three to five seconds out. Then I'll do what's called like a super ventilation. So it's a, so it's a forced, like a really big inhale through my nose and then exhale through my mouth for 20 reps. On the 20th rep, I'm gonna exhale and hold my breath. So if you read the oxygen advantage, breath holding and CO2 tolerance is a big topic. It's really important to get comfortable being a little uncomfortable because you need that buildup of CO2 in order for the oxygen to actually get into the tissue. So he talks about everyone being like over breathers, right? Like we sit all day long at our computers like doing these short chest breaths and you're exhaling too much carbon dioxide because you need that in order for the oxygen to transfer into the tissue. So the easiest reference is like a Ferris wheel, right? So if the Ferris wheel is full, in order for me to get on, someone has to get off. Same thing with oxygen and CO2. In order for oxygen to get into the muscle tissue and into our, our bodies, CO2 needs to be uh, let off. So if you over breathe and exhale too much CO2, you're not gonna have an efficient transfer of tissue. Meaning like when you're huffing and puffing, that's not really effective. You'd be much smarter if you were like winded and out of breath to go and take a really big slower breath because you're gonna allow some CO2 to build up which is going to allow you to offload that when oxygen comes into the tissue. So you get a more efficient exchange at that point. Wow. Did that make sense? That made a ton of sense. I, I thought you broke that down really well. No, that was very digestible. And to me, that was the first time breathing was uh, sexy too. You did a good job making it like cool. Yeah. Like breathing stuff to talk about, it's not cool. Breathing's not sexy until it improves your performance. Like I started running and now my lungs don't burn. I can go further and I'm under control. I don't have to stop and take a break to catch my breath. I got a question on that. When you're running, have you changed your breath cadence? Do you try to do more nose breathing than belly breathing? Totally, right? So depending on my pace, my intensity, I start like the first mile all nasal at least because it's difficult and I sometimes have to what go slower. What is your pace on that? Yeah, it has to I'm be still slower. running like under a nine minute, eight thirties or something because I typically train around like eight thirty miles, sometimes faster. Yeah, well, if you're going to go 26. Yeah, so it, yeah, because it's distance, it's not sprints, but, and I'm not an endurance athlete, but yeah. the breathing helps because think about that. If you're breathing through your nose, all that nitric oxide is releasing and vasodilating. So you know how you kind of feel groggy for a mile or two when you run and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm feeling good. I can do this all day. That's because you're respiratory system was not warmed up. You need to warm it up. And you can do that a lot faster by breathing through your nose intently. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. every good coach has ever told you, like take a deep breath through your nose, exhale through your mouth, which is pretty true. But it's actually really powerful if you can exhale through your nose too, yes. which is challenging. I've told myself I'm gonna do all my movement prep with nasal breathing, maybe like a hundred times. And then halfway through I forget and I'm all breathing well, through my mouth. I'm like, ah, damn it. Think about this too. Like we, we have some good systems, right? With the functional movement screen, with Institute of Motion. Like whenever you see someone with corrective exercise, that's a big topic in fitness. What's the first protocol people tell you to work on? Get the breathing right. And like when I learned kettlebells, the first thing you fix is someone's breathing to make sure the breath matches the movement. And that will clean up a lot of patterns in itself, just the breath work. We're not even talking muscles or technique or just, just breathe, right? And that will clean up a ton of your movement. Here's a good test. Try and hold your breath and do as many air squats as you can. <gasps> like you might get 10, 
15 air squats and your legs are big muscles, right? So they take up a lot of oxygen and all of a sudden you have this massive buildup of CO2 and you're toast. You need to breathe really quickly. It's crazy though, like big surfing, big wave surfing. If someone's held down for a while, the strategy is do not use your legs at all. The strategy is use your arms to swim up to the top. Because if you start kicking with your legs, you're you're wasting energy and you're not able to hold your breath as long because you're depleting the oxygen stores in your lungs. So the strategy is to use big arm motions to get you to the top and not use your legs at all. Go limp body on the bottom. It's crazy. Josh, you're making me question a lot of things. Yeah. This is good. (laughs) I'm glad. I want to make you think a little bit. So did we talk about where fat goes? When you burn it. Like tip right now as I get older, about uh, mid-belly is where it goes. So when you burn fat, when, when you burn fat, where does it go? Do you guys know? Oh, I have no idea. Well, you, you don't take a lighter to your side and just kind of burn it off, right? You sweat, pee, poop. So close. You <laughs> actually, when you... <laughs> Let's be honest. When you when you burn fat, you breathe it. You exhale it out. So literally, fat breaks down and metabolizes and turns into CO two and water. So if you're losing ten pounds, eight of those pounds are exhaled. The other two or three are excreted through urine and waste. <laughs> Stop. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, okay, disclaimer, don't try and sit on your bed and do a bunch of breathing. Expect to Why lose a bunch of weight. in the living room just sitting in lotus breathing <laughs> my lungs out. Oh, that's really good. So you still need the movement and the proper Whoa. diet and nutrition, but when you lose it, you're exhaling it. It's Whoa. You exhale we, we, the we, fat. We spoke earlier about not wanting to show off to our clients too much and prove that you know stuff. I'd maybe hit them with that question next time you meet with someone. Yeah. Hey, where, where's all your fat go? Oh, you breathe it out. And then they're going to be like, whoa, how'd you know that? Yeah, make sure you You're breathe amazing. it down as well as Josh just did. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing too, like you get the runner's high. You feel really good after the workout. Why is that? A lot of times it's because you were breathing hard. Like throughout the day when we were hunters and gatherers, right? Like you were breathing hard to chase an animal or to run away from one. But now we don't necessarily do that unless you're physically active going to the gym or running or during, or whatever your sport or hobby is, but you feel really good after you do that stuff. And you're able to get out of this, like we live in this high-strung world, right? Everyone's fighting for our attention and they're messing with our cognitive center in the frontal lobe. When you do dedicated breath work, almost like meditation, right? Meditation starts a lot of times with breath work. The breathing allows you to get out of that cognitive thought center and into your mid like reptilian brain where you get all of the dopamine serotonin epinephrine adrenaline like the feel-good chemicals and you don't necessarily think too much like you're able to get out of your own head for a minute which is a really a cool place to go drugs will sometimes elicit those hormones to be released but you don't need drugs you can just breathe which is much safer yeah and since you started talking about breathing i feel better because i'm <laughs> over here belly breathing like a yeah like no one's business i wonder how many <laughs> folks listen to this like in their car or whatever also working on the breath Hand on the chest, hand on the steering wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, true. Like, if you actually look around at people in their cars, like, you'll see people's mouths hanging wide open because they're stressed and they're like, ah, ah, like road rage, right? Like, instead of getting road rage, just take a few deep nasal clearing breaths and you will be like, wow, this is the best commute ever. (sighs) That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, for you, uh, uh, those of you on the treadmill, close your mouth. 
it's not easy to do, but with a little bit of practice, it can be really beneficial. Even like there's a recovery breath strategy I use. So we'll do intervals and we've proven this, right? Like you do a couple intervals on a row or a treadmill or whatever. And the recovery breath is like three to five really big mouth breaths, right? So you go <sighs> to get a ton of air in, right? Just to start the process. But then right away on like the fifth one, you slow it down. So you go all through the nose, out through the mouth, in through the nose, out through the mouth, five reps. And then you go seven all nasal breaths and try it next time you're at the gym or doing some cardio with interval training you will be shocked at how quickly you can recover, lower your heart rate and regain your breath, right? You guys have heard of like heart rate variability training where you're trying to see how high you can jack it up and how quickly you can lower your heart rate. Well, this can help lower your heart rate a lot quicker so you recover between intervals. You know what this makes me think of is breathing is like eating broccoli, man. Like to do it that purposefully, nobody's doing it unless somebody's holding you accountable or you just really find a passion in this. So. I know we mentioned this earlier, Josh, and where people can find you, but would you let them know again, like say someone wants to come work with you on this and actually like get better at this skill of breathing. That's so funny to call breathing a skill, but (laughs) it it very much is like, I don't want to be arrogant, but a lot of people aren't breathing efficiently or optimally, right? Like I don't want to say wrong or right because that makes people sound bad, but it's not optimal, right? Like normal is not optimal. There's a big difference. Yeah. So to breathe optimally to increase performance or increase your life or your relationships or your work, whatever. Um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. I put a lot of stuff out at Josh Meltz. I have a website. It's MeltzFit, so M-E-L-T-Z-Fit.com, where I'm putting some content out. There'll be an email newsletter you can sign up for on there. Blog posts are coming soon about this kind of stuff. There's a ton of information out there if you start doing the research on the Wim Hof breathing style. Um, XPT is a really good one with Laird Hamilton. Laird, yeah. Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese are talking about breathe, move, recover. They've got some great resources. The other one is Brian McKenzie and the Art of Breath guys. I went to one of their seminars, phenomenal crew, doing some work on breathing. There's, yeah, I mean, the other thing too, like the yogis and monks have done this for thousands of years. It's nothing new. Like, go take a yoga class. And what is that teacher cueing you through? Like, it's all breathing. And ultimately, that's what centers and like grounds you to the practice like your chi is like your breath it's really really fascinating and they've been doing it forever and now it's just like people are starting to realize like okay i can increase my performance and it it always usually in my opinion starts with like the athletes that want to excel then trickles down into the mainstream general population because everyone realizes there's more daily like practical benefits that can help your everyday life yeah it's true i mean Nothing's going to get guys doing yoga like hearing LeBron's doing yoga. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you hear uh, Steph Curry's working on breathing tactics to drain more threes. I'd be like, yeah, I'll do it. Right? I'm and then it, it becomes mainstream overnight. Yeah. All right, bud. Well, as we always, th- I mean, this was just great, huh? I thought he dropped a lot of yeah. knowledge today. Josh, thank you. Yeah. Of course, thank you guys for having me on. This was cool. I really enjoyed the conversation, and we'll do it again sometime soon. Yeah, Keep bye. going. All right. So we always end with a song of the day. You got one for us? Yeah, I heard you ask some other people this question, so I thought about it. It's a little sad, R.I.P. Mac Miller, but self-care is my song of the day with the theme of taking care of yourself, and it's a great song. Sorry, Mom, another rap song. (laughs) (laughs) Self-care, Mac Miller. We got Josh Meltzer, MeltzFit, M-E-L-T-Z, fit.com. Check them out, you guys. And uh, as always, stay coachable.
team. If you like today's podcast, find more in all of our content at coachability.fit. Also, if you'd like to reach out to us, whether it's with questions, concerns, feedback, or suggestions for future podcasts, contact us at coachability.fit at gmail.com, coachability.fit at gmail.com. And as always, stay coachable. Thank mm-hmm. you.